Today, we are going to finish 1 Samuel. Can you believe it? Um, all 31, I believe, chapters uh, we will finish today. So let me pray. Lord, as we open your word, we ask that uh, you would speak to us through it. Lord, we want to know you more. We want to heed your warnings. We want to submit to your instruction. And most of all, we want to know you better. Uh, so Lord, um, please use our time together in the word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're finishing 1 Samuel. If you remember, the book of 1 Samuel begins with the birth of little Samuel. He grows up to be the undisputed prophet of Israel. The people want a king. So Samuel anoints the first king of Israel, King Saul. But Saul's heart is not devoted to God. So God tells Samuel to anoint a young boy named David to be the next king. But here's the problem. Saul is still king. And as David is rising in authority and popularity, Saul becomes insanely jealous of David. Now, by the time we are where we are today, Samuel is now dead. The prophet Samuel is dead. And for the last 10 chapters, Saul has been trying to kill David. He's thrown his spear at him three times. He's chasing him all over the wilderness. Uh, Saul has an army of 3,000 Israelites trying to call David. But God protects David again and again and again. Now, as we approach the end of 1 Samuel, both Saul and David face tremendous dilemmas. I mean, this would make an awesome movie as antagonist and protagonist. Uh, both at the end face these horrible dilemmas. And here's our little outline. All right? Saul's dilemma, which we're going to spend most of our time on, followed by David's dilemma, Whoa. followed by David's deliverance, followed by Saul's demise. All right? So let's take a look. We're going to spend most of our time in chapter 28 at Saul's dilemma. Now, the first two verses are kind of a setup uh, of where we are in the story. So it says, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. Now, where is David? Do you remember whose side David is on these days? He has escaped from Saul time and time again, and he flees to the Philistines. He's in enemy territory. And he has convinced the king of the Philistines that he's really on the Philistines' side. So now David has this dilemma. The Philistines, with whom he's hanging out, are going to go to war against Israel, of whom he's going to be the king. All right? Um, and Ashish, that's the king of the Philistines, said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. See, he has really won the trust of Ashish. David said to Ashish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. Now, 
I think that's kind of coded language. He's not lying. He is basically saying, you're going to see what I can do. But I think what David intends, at least, is to turn on the Philistines with his troops and fight against them. But what a, what a terrible position to be in, right? And Asius said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. I'll put you in charge of protecting me. Okay. Now, what about Samuel? Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. So here we have have Saul, who's demon-influenced one day, the next day he's banning witches and mediums. Necromancers are those who communicate with the dead because the Old Testament law said you're not to have anything to do with them. So he passes a decree, get rid of all the witches and all the, uh, the mediums. But, so here we go into the real heart of the problem. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Sunam. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the armies of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Lord, we're going to fight the Philistines. Are we going to win? Give me some advice. Nothing. Dead silence. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium. Some of your translations say a witch. Okay. That I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there's a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know that what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her, by the Lord. So here he is, this dual, you know, I, I'm, I'm consulting a witch, which I've outlawed, but I'll swear to you by God that you won't be. So there's this God talk and this crazy behavior of going to a witch all in one guy. But Saul swore to her by the Lord as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, okay, now I think the text is saying that she saw Samuel. Now we'll get into some complexities here in just a minute. But when she saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Okay, so let's put it on pause right here and talk about this whole phenomenon of mediums contacting the dead. All right? So here's the question. 
Is it real? Can mediums contact the dead? And what's going on here? Now, there are three possible explanations for uh, how mediums back then and all over time and still today uh, contact the dead. And the, the three explanations are deception, demons, or they actually are contacting the dead. Okay? So let me first of all talk about deception. Okay? Now, while there have always been witches and mediums and those who try to contact the dead in America, at the turn of the century, between the turn of the 1800s and the 1900s, America had gone spiritualism crazy. People were going to mediums and there were actually traveling shows where people would contact the dead. Uh, It was an amazing phenomenon. And it really was in its heyday, or I should say it began with these three sisters named the Fox sisters, Katie, Leah, and Maggie Fox. Now, when they were little, at night in their little log cabin, their parents would hear knock, 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 little knocking noises. And the parents said, girls, what's going on? And two of them said, oh, we're communicating with the dead. Well, word spread throughout their neighborhood that this was going on, and they became a phenomenon. And pretty soon, as they grew up, um, they actually traveled all over the world doing seances and actually stage shows where people would ask questions and the, the spirits would, would answer by knocking. Knock, knock. One of the girls was the manager. I don't know which one's which. Um, but two were contacting the dead, and one was a manager. Now, make a long story short, when Maggie was on her deathbed, she confessed that it was all a fraud. Turns out that when they were young girls, they could crack their toe knuckles. And especially if you put your toe on uh, a wood floor or next to a wood table, it amplifies the sound. And they made a lot of money cracking their toe knuckles, <laughs> claiming it was the spirits talking. Now, so they actually kind of became recluses at the end of their life, and she confessed this, but she did it for money. So the question was, was she fake confessing? But anyway, the genie was out of the bottle. And spiritism had, had spread, and people were going to seances like crazy. Enter this guy. Anybody know who that is? It's Harry Houdini. Yeah. Um, believe it or not, he single-handedly put an end to false spiritualism. So here's what happened. Houdini really loved his mama. And when she died, he wanted to talk to her. So he went to spiritualists and to mediums. The problem is, 
he saw how they were doing it. There was all these different trick methods that he as a magician could spot. And he became enraged and he went on a crusade exposing how false mediums were making noises and they would make ghosts appear and writing on slates and things. And um, in fact, that's, that's him in a disguise as an old man. He would actually go to seances disguised and then rip off his wig and say, I am the great Houdini and explain how it was done. By the end of his life, his show consisted of three parts, magic and illusions, escapes, and fraud, mediums exposed. So uh, part of the show was how to uh, explain or explaining how these guys were doing this. Okay? Now, what's interesting is magicians have followed in Houdini's steps, and most of them have this worldview where they believe there's no such thing as genuine supernatural phenomenon. Okay? Uh, there was a guy named the Amazing Randy. Who do, do any of you remember Uri Geller back in the 70s and 80s? He was a, a guy who would go on all the talk shows and he would bend spoons with his mind. And the Amazing Randy said, well, I can do that. And he exposed uh, uh, Uri Geller as, as uh, a fake Penn and Teller uh, are atheists. They have a naturalistic worldview. Therefore, uh, nothing supernatural happens. Therefore, all trickery or all supernatural phenomenon is either myth or trickery. Okay? Now, here's the fallacy. By the way, some of you know I'm a, I'm a, I gotta be careful, I'm not a magician. I'm a, an illusionist. And my brethren, Magicians sometimes can be rather arrogant. And here's their thinking. Because the supernatural can be faked, therefore most or all, all supernatural claims must be fraudulent. Because we can fool you, all supernatural claims must be trickery. I think they're wrong, but they're looking at the world through their craft. Okay, So one explanation for how mediums contact the dead is through trickery, through deception. But I think the Bible makes it clear that when there is true supernatural communication, what's really going on is demons are involved. All right? So here's an example in Acts 16. Paul is in Philippi. And it says, as we were, so Luke is writing, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So she would predict the future, and she had a spirit, a demon that would talk through her. Okay? Now, be careful. I don't think demons are omniscient. I don't think they have a perfect knowledge of the future. But they do have knowledge of some things. And they can lie. And they can make it seem like they really know the future. So here's um, these slave owners who own a slave girl. She has a demon that when people would pay money, she would go into her trance and speak what the future would say. It's a demon. Okay. Now, this is interesting. She followed Paul and us, crying out 
These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that true? It's absolutely true. So what that tells you is Satan will go along with the truth to get you hooked in. Okay? But do you really need a demon-possessed girl following you around screaming, These people have the truth! These people have the truth! No, that gets annoying, and Paul became annoyed. At this, she kept doing, uh, and this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. I believe the biblical explanation for how mediums and witches and fortune tellers know anything about the future is it's demonic. You're not tapping into really talking to the dead. There are demons involved, which is why God clearly forbids his people to go to mediums or fortune tellers or anyone else who claims they can gain access to the spiritual realm. Now, why does God say no? For two reasons. One, it's not trusting in him. You are to place your trust in him. He has revealed what you need to know in the scriptures. You can have a living, dynamic prayer life with him. But to go around God to talk to Uncle Fred, who's passed on, uh, first of all, that's not trusting in him. Secondly, it's not Uncle Fred. You are opening yourself up to the demonic realm. And let me talk to the youth here. It's kind of a, a, a common thing for the youth to have a slumber party, you know, kids from school or whatever, and they pull out a Ouija board, which is this board that has numbers and letters on it, and you ask the spirits to lead you, and it spells out names and things. And um, while a lot of that is uh, just they're moving it on their own, in many cases, demons actually are involved, and you are opening yourself up to demonic influence, if not demonic possession. So stay away from that whole realm. In fact, take a look at what it says in Deuteronomy 18. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. Okay, so don't do that. Anyone who practices divination, that's trying to, to tell the future or tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So, I just need to make one comment. What about praying to Mary and saints. Well, anyone who inquires of the dead is an abomination to God. Well, but saints have attained a special state. They're dead, right? Mary's dead, right? Is prayer inquiring of them? The only one you're to pray to is God. 
okay? Avoid this realm. Now, the one explanation is deception. The, the, the biblical explanation for how this phenomenon works is demons. But I do believe there is one exception, and that is in this particular case that we're looking at. I believe in this case, God actually allows Samuel to speak to Saul. Back to the text. Verse 13, the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth, or a spirit coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. Notice it doesn't say Saul knew that it was a demon faking sin. No, Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul. Okay, so so here we have Samuel speaking to Saul. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. So here's the deal, Samuel. Um, God's abandoned me, so I'm going to do an end run around God, and I'm going to go to you. Crazy thinking, right? Verse 16. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? If God has abandoned you, and I, as God's mouthpiece, have already told you that God has abandoned you, what are you doing asking me? I'm just going to confirm what I've already said, and that's exactly what happens. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, back when I was alive. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Now, here's the best part. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. Dead, that is. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. That reminds me, you know, you've heard the joke of the guy, he's got his best friend, and they've always loved playing baseball, and they go to baseball games, and the friend dies, and he. The, the, the living guy's at the funeral, and he's over the dead body, and he says, hey, Harry, you got to answer me. Is there baseball in heaven? And a voice comes back and says, I got good news and bad news. Good news is there is baseball in heaven. Bad news is you're pitching tomorrow, right? So, Saul, give me a prophecy. Or uh, Samuel, give me a prophecy. Okay, here's a prophecy. You're going to die. And the response, uh, let's skip that. Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. So I I thought of an analogy. Let's say 
there's this real evil guy and real evil girl. They're gangsters. They've been living together for years. They rob people. They sell drugs. They swear like sailors. They've killed people. But they decide, hey, let's, let's get married. Um, so we're going to need, you know, we're, we're not, we don't want to submit to God, but we want a representative of God, a pastor, to say the blessing and marry us. Where can we find one? And they talk to their friends, and one guy says, hey, I got a guy. I know a guy who knows a guy. His brother-in-law is a pastor. He'll do anything for money. So it's the day of the wedding, and all the gangsters are all lined up in their beautiful tuxes and dresses, and she comes down the aisle, and uh, the pastor is ready to, to come out, and God gets a hold of him and says, um, you're going to do the right thing. So he comes out, and rather than pronouncing a blessing, he preaches a sermon on the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, don't use the Lord's name in vain. And conviction comes over the bride and the girl, they fall face down. And the whole bridal party falls face down. The whole, all the gangsters in the crowd fall face down. That, in essence, is what is going on here. You know, you've heard of doctor shopping, where you keep going to a doctor until you get what you want. Saul's a prophet shopper. You know, God has already rejected him. Maybe I can, just one more time, and he'll tell me what I want to hear. By the way, um, there are, are people who are, church shoppers, prophet shoppers, pastor shoppers. They'll just keep, they're, they're not out to hear what God really has to say. They just want to find a position, a theological position that lines up with what they already believe, so they go shopping. You know, you can do that. It's called Google. You know, you can find any, uh, you, you can find any theological position you want with a Ph.D. theologian behind it. Okay, so um, here is Saul's dilemma. He's going to die. All right, now, let me quickly cover David's dilemma. David, he's with the Philistines. The king trusts him. Now he's expected to fight against Israel. How's he going to get out of this? Well, here's what happens. Uh, so the king says, David, you're going to be my bodyguard, but the king talks to his generals and commanders, and it says, but the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. What if he turns on us in the middle of the battle? For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? You know, David must have had enough of a reputation that he was still loyal to the Lord. So the, the commanders are like, no, he's a traitor. We don't trust him. So they send him away. So he doesn't have to fight against Israel. But he's with his 600 men. They have been given a city where all the wives and the children uh, have been waiting. David and his men go back to this city, and what do they find? Chapter 30, and when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, 
and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So imagine the despair David feels. Saul hates him and wants to kill him. The Philistines are on to him and they want to kill him. Now his own men hate him because all the wives and children have disappeared. Now, Saul went to God to use him. David here does it the right way. He goes to God and just throws himself on the mercy of God. He strengthens himself in the Lord. He places his full reliance on God. And um, he does. They have, remember, they have the Urim and the Thummim. Um, he uses that to find out if he, he should pursue these people who have stolen all the wives and the children. And God says, go get them. So now we see the deliverance, David's deliverance. The answer is pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds. So bonus. Not only does he rescue all the wives and children, but they get all the spoils of the enemy. Okay? So it ends very well for David at this point. What about Saul? Saul's demise. So the Israelites and The Philistines go to war, and here's what happens. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan. Oh, Jonathan's dead. And Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Saul dies. So then what happens is the Philistines find his dead body. They cut off his head. They take his son's bodies and do the same. And there's a, uh, a town called Beth Sheen. And they took his body and his son's bodies and they hung it on the wall at Beth Sheen. And 1 Samuel ends with some valiant Israelites 
riding through the night, taking the bodies down, bringing them back to Israel, burning them, and giving them a proper burial. Now, how are we to apply the ending here? David's ending and Saul's ending. Now, you've got to be careful. Because, you know, when you're reading your Bible, you should be asking, what does this have to do with me? How do I apply this? And if you're not careful, you might fall into an overly simplistic prosperity gospel. Right? David trusted in God. Just trust in God. He'll deliver you from your mess. And he'll give you bonus spoils. Right? Trust in Jesus and all will go well. You'll be happy, wealthy, and healthy. Right? That's kind of what Job's friends thought. If you were faithful to God, he would bless you, make you happy and healthy. And look at you. You're full of scabs sitting on a garbage pile. You've lost your family. You've lost all your wealth. You must be bad. Right? I think the better way to apply this to ourselves is to see this last chapter or these last chapters as physical pictures illustrating eternal truths. Okay? In other words, trust in the Lord, but it's not necessarily in this life that you will be blessed, but you are certainly guaranteed to be blessed in eternity. In fact, you could say that Saul illustrates the first phrase in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Physical and eternal. Okay? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As David trusts in the Lord, he is physically blessed. As we trust in the Lord, we will be eternally blessed. Now let me remind us that our trust in God is not some good work we do um, and then God says, oh, good job, you've been a good person and I'm letting you into heaven because of how good you are. No, 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 no. Let's go back to the, the thief on the cross. When a sinner recognizes that you are a hopeless, helpless sinner. When you trust in Christ, what happens? Well, remember the thief on the cross. He trusts in Jesus, and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. His sin was placed upon Christ where it was paid for. And Christ's perfect record, his perfect righteousness was placed upon the thief. So one second, he was a hell-bound sinner deserving of eternal condemnation. He trusts in Christ, and the next minute, he is seen as a not only forgiven, but a perfectly righteous person who will be with Jesus in paradise. So I believe the best way to apply this is to look at David, to look at Saul, look at it eternally, examine yourself. Are you trusting in the Lord? Is your confidence not based on your cleverness, your record, your anything? 
Is your confidence based on the cross of Christ where he paid it all? 